Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. And my brother Nick Luizzi read the text earlier, but I want to read it again. Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. This is the word of the living God. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen? Amen. Well, I want to talk to you this morning and the next uh, three times that we're together uh, from the Gospel of Mark on the Topic of the unrivaled authority of Jesus, and the unrivaled authority of Jesus. Um, the title of this morning's message is, is just that, the unrivaled authority of our Lord. And for most of us, maybe when we hear about, we hear the word authority, or we even see the exercise of authority, right? Um, negative pictures or images come to our minds. When we think about authority, maybe you hear that word, your mind is filled with pictures of maybe growing up in a, in a particular home where maybe your, your parents, one parent or the other, used authority, used their power as your parents in a way that wasn't right, in a way that was abusive in some way, shape, or form. Maybe some of you have um, had experiences where people in authority in various contexts in your life have exploited you, using that authority not for your good but for, to harm you. Not for healing, but to hurt you. Maybe you've been in some of those contexts. And so for many of us, authority, just the very word itself, has a very bad negative connotation. We think of that word as um, just uh, negative because we have, have bad examples of people who have wielded authority. Even in our world, our world doesn't help us, does it? We have bad examples of, of, of wrongful use of, uh, of authority all over our world. Um, there are governments who abuse authority, who instead of using their authority that has been given to them ultimately by God to punish the wicked and to protect the innocent and those who need their help, they do the opposite, don't they? They do the opposite. They harm people. I remember a few years ago in 2010 when the massive earthquake hit the small little country of Haiti that my ministry that I was working with at the time, we were sending tons of containers with food and medical supplies and different kinds of things for these these, um, uh, folks in in Haiti who were suffering because of these earthquakes that had taken place. And I remember hearing about how the Haitian government was holding back the release of many containers, not just from our ministry, but many other ministries that were trying to help the Haitian people. Why? Because they were wielding their authority and their power for their own benefit. They wanted to, to have those, those uh, uh, products themselves. And consequently, a lot of people weren't being helped. You know, we have governments and examples of government using their power and authority for wrong reasons that way, right? 
special interest groups in our country, such as LGBT and Planned Parenthood and the feminist movement, wielding the power that they have or their authority to, for selfish purposes. Those are examples of wrongful use of authority. How many of us haven't been a part of churches and over the, uh, our upbringing, perhaps, that instead of having leadership that actually shepherded the people and exercised their God-given gifts and their authority to care for people, they exercised their authority for their own benefit and for their own agendas? How many of us haven't been in work settings or perhaps are in work settings where there are people, maybe your boss or supervisors over you, or people who are there who are seeking their, to use their authority to basically advance themselves. And they don't care about who they step over in order to advance themselves in that particular company or job setting. We have all kinds of bad examples of authority, don't we? And I think this really clouds our thinking, beloved, when we talk about the unrivaled authority of Jesus. Because already we get pictures and images of a, of a king, Jesus Christ, who comes in using his authority in the same way that the corrupt government or other corrupt people in our society. And maybe even at times we've done the same thing in the ways that we used our authority, right? But Jesus isn't like that. In all of these examples that I gave you, there's a fundamental problem, isn't, isn't there? People forget that the authority that they might be given in a particular office or a particular setting ultimately does not reside within them. It's not inherent authority, is it? Ultimately, all authority comes from God. And certainly God is not the originator of corrupt use of authority, but ultimately everything comes from God. And all authority is ultimately given to people in whatever context for the purpose of people's benefit, not for selfish ambition or selfish agendas but for the good of others that is why what we should be using our authority for now for us as believers i want to encourage and exhort us this morning that just because we have these corrupt uses of authority and examples of authority in our world and maybe from our own experiences it doesn't mean it does not mean that authority or the exercise of authority is wrong or evil right it is our hearts that are corrupt it is our hearts that are evil, and everything we put our hands on, we corrupt, we twist, we use for our own wicked purposes. We use for selfish ambition. Instead of using our authority to, he to bring healing and to help other people, we use our authority in a negative, sinful kind of way. And so authority, just because of the corrupt examples in our, in our, perhaps in our country even right now, doesn't mean that authority is Wrong, And I want us to see this morning in the example of the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, I want to encourage you, especially this morning in light of what just happened, that we need to be people who are beholding our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, all the more in this day and age that we live in. There's nothing greater that we can do in our church, in our neighborhoods, in our jobs, in our country right now, as God has us in existence right now, than to be beholding Christ and to be heightening our view of Jesus Christ, right? And even putting our hope in what He is going to come and deliver someday, a future spiritual and physical kingdom on this earth, a new heavens and a new earth. Jesus has all authority. And one thing that we learn about our Lord Jesus Christ is that even though He was infinite in authority and no one can compete with His authority, He, as the eternal Son of God, used His authority to seek and to serve the lost. Think about that. 
He came. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus had all authority, and we see glimpses of that authority even in the text that we're going to look at this morning. But he always used his authority for the glory of his Father to do what his Father had called him to do and to help people and to be in the service of humanity. That is why he came, to give his life for people. So he who had infinite power, infinite authority, used it, Mark this, to lay down his life for sinners, like you and I. This is central to Mark's message throughout the Gospel of Mark. Everything that Jesus does, everything that he says, is all designed to point to his identity as the Son of God, as the Messiah. And it is meant to point to the fact that he is unrivaled in his authority and that we must submit to him, right? And that's what I want us to see this morning. In this passage, I want us to see that Jesus... Jesus' authority is shown in his words and his works. His authority is shown in his words and his works. And my prayer, beloved, is that as we look at this passage and Jesus' authority in his words and his works, is that you and I would come to the point where we would joyfully and willingly submit ourselves out of love to the Lordship of Christ in every area of our life, right? Every area of our life. Beginning with saving faith for some of you who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. That you would find Jesus as the only hope for the salvation of your soul. That you would know that He is the one who came to earth, died on the cross for your sins, paid for your sins, and that you would trust Him. That you would believe in Him. That you would submit your life to Him. And for those of us who are Christians and who are believers who have submitted our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, there are areas of our lives... Sometimes areas that people don't even know about, that we have yet to submit to the Lordship of Christ. And I want to remind us that as we view, we see Jesus' authority here in his words and works, we need to be people who submit ourselves to his loving, gracious authority. Notice, first and foremost, Jesus' authority is heard in his words. Jesus' authority is heard in his words. Look at verse 21. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath... It says that he entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. You know, at the time of Christ, in addition to the the temple, which was the central place for Jews to go and worship, there were also these places that people would gather for worship called synagogues. Synagogues. And the focus of these synagogues was to provide places for people to come and worship. And for people to come and hear the word of God. And for there to be teaching. Synagogue is refers to a place of gathering. It was a place where people gathered for worship. And it's believed that synagogues, by most conservative um, writers, that synagogues started during the time of the exile, during the time of Ezra. In fact, in Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, we find Ezra there opening up the scriptures and explaining the scriptures to the people uh, who are returning from the exile. That's the, the, what most believe are the origin of these synagogues. And like I said, the primary focus of these synagogues was worship. People would gather together in prayer. They would read the Torah, the Law of Moses. And then there would be a sermon. And this sermon didn't have to be by a special prof- professional individual, by a scribe who was an expert in the law, or by a rabbi. In fact, a rabbi didn't even need to be present in these, these synagogues. What would happen is that the ruler or the head of the assembly, the head of the synagogue, would be responsible for coordinating the service and for providing a teacher, somebody who was qualified there amongst the people to be able to teach. 
So synagogues had sort of a democ- were sort of democratic in nature. And anyone deemed qualified by the leader of the synagogue could teach. Anyone could teach. So this made it easy, if you notice, for somebody like Jesus to be able to enter places like synagogues and to be able to, to teach on the Sabbath, a day especially set aside by God's people for worship. Jesus was able to do this freely as deemed qualified by the leader of the synagogue. And so here is Jesus, as becomes his custom all the more, entering the synagogue. And it says at the end of verse 21 that he begins to teach. And over and over again in the Gospels, teaching and preaching is that which Jesus himself says is his highest priority. If you notice in verse 38, Jesus said to them, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. Jesus says there that preaching is what he came for. Preaching what? Remember back in verses 14 and 15, Jesus is preaching the gospel of God, the good news of God's coming kingdom. And he's preaching the good news of God's coming kingdom because he himself is saying, I am the king in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. I am here. The good news is that I am here. And what the people did not understand is that he was there first and foremost to deliver them from their sins, right? That was the focus of Jesus' preaching, the gospel, the good news concerning himself. Can I remind us that this is our mission as well? That if you are a believer here this morning, you are a Christian, you are a follower of Jesus, a disciple. Disciples focus themselves on promoting and, 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 and proclaiming the teaching of their discipler. That was the understanding. So what does that mean for us as believers? That if we say that we are followers of Jesus Christ, and our primary focus, beloved, is to be sharing, preaching, teaching concerning the good news of Jesus Christ. That is our mission. You are not here on this earth to get a good job, first and foremost. You are not here on this earth to get a great education, to graduate from Harvard or in some other fancy-smancy place. You are not here on this earth to get a big house and a lot of cars and some dogs and some pets and some cats. That is not your end goal here on this earth. You are here on mission as a Christian to be a disciple-making disciple, right? And all of those things should God provide them for you, should be used for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's why we're here. That's why we're here. Jesus viewed every single moment, every opportunity with people as a divine appointment from his heavenly father for him to proclaim the gospel of the good news concerning his kingdom. And he enters into the synagogue in this place where people are gathered for worship to preach with authority concerning himself. That's why he used every opportunity to do that. Now, normally the people were accustomed to hearing sermons and teaching, but not like this one, right? You might think that the scribes who were the experts of the law, the theologians of the land, would deliver some great sermons because they were the trained individuals. But that was not the case, beloved. It was common and typical that what scribes would do when they would teach is point to the other scribe and the other tradition. This is what scribe such and such says. And this is what such and such teacher said. And they would always be appealing to other people except for the very word of God as authoritative They didn't teach from personal conviction or in a passionate, compelling manner. They loved to be called rabbis, meaning my great ones. They loved to be honored by men. 
They loved for people to defer to them in the marketplaces. But they had no theological backbone, no passion, no ultimate authority because their authority wasn't being derived from the very scriptures themselves, you see. That was what was typical of the day. And as a result, people were starving spiritually. Starving spiritually. Like many churches in America right now. Where men don't open up the Word of God. Where we have individuals who, with thousands of people sitting in front of them, initially look up and say, this is what our trust is in. And then for the rest of the one hour that they are lecturing, they never open up the Word of God for God's people. They never do. On this occasion, they were going to get something different. They would not be disappointed. And though we don't get all the specifics of Jesus' teaching here in Mark, we are told of the profound impact that Jesus' teaching had. Look at verse 22. It says that upon hearing Jesus, the people in attendance were amazed at His teaching. Why? Notice, for He was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. And look at verse 27. They were amazed So that they debated amongst themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? It wasn't new in the sense that they had, they had, it it was new in the sense that they had become accustomed to sermonettes from these scribes. To little devotionals that had nothing to do with scripture, but they they were pointing to the tradition of, of the religious leaders and to other scribes. But not sermons that gripped them. Not sermons that convicted them. Not sermons that that compel them to be different for the glory of God. The word amazer has a sense of being struck with a blow. You ever been punched? You ever gotten in a fight growing up? I was a boxer as a kid, and believe me, I got hit pretty hard many times, right? Knocks you out of your senses, right? That's the idea here. Jesus' teaching was so powerful that it literally knocked them out of their senses, out of their normal, comfortable state of mind. That's how authoritative it was. They were thunderstruck, as somebody has put it. They were thunderstruck. In uh, contrast to their scribes, at the end of verse 22, Jesus' teaching came with authority. That's how he characterizes this, Mark does. Eleven times in the book of Mark, that word authority is used, and every single time it's speaking of Jesus' inherent authority or of the authority that Jesus gives to the apostles for for his mission. It's all Jesus' authority. Mark emphasizes that throughout his gospel. And please don't miss this. Mark's point in doing, doing that repeatedly is this, that only one who was the Son of God, the Messiah, could speak this way in that day. No one but Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, could speak this way. And thus, you should believe in Him. You should trust Him. You should give your life to Him. You should live for Him. Jesus wasn't just another ruling council member. He wasn't just another so-called expert of the law who spoke out of both sides of His mouth. He spoke with deep conviction because He knew from deep conviction that He had a life-giving message, the gospel that could set the captives free from enslavement to sin, beloved. That's where authority ultimately comes from, right? From the very Word of God. And because we know that we have a message that can bring healing to people, that can grant forgiveness when people understand that Jesus died for their sins, paid for their sins on the cross, and they put their trust in Him, they can be delivered and rescued from their sin. And that's why we preach with authority, don't we? That's why we share during the week and witness to people with authority. Not our own authority, the authority that comes from the very saving message of God, right? That's what Jesus was doing here. He knew that this message of his kingdom 
concerning himself had the power to rescue people from hell, from enslavement to their own sin. So he spoke with such authority that wasn't common or popular in his day. And can I just tell you, we are living, beloved, in an age that rejects or is indifferent to biblical authority, right? Nobody wants to hear what God has to say anymore. Or people want to, you know, pretend like God is nowhere to be found. He doesn't speak on certain issues in our society. He's just a loving God. He never wants to offend anybody. People have created a God of their own creation, haven't they? But that is not the God that Jesus preached. That is not the God of the Bible. People are intolerant in our culture about anyone that tells them how to live their lives. They're intolerant towards anyone who tells them about what God is saying. Jesus is doing this. Preaching with authority. Telling people about what God says. What do we find in our culture today? Think about this. We find in our culture today people who want suggestions. They want recommendations. They want to know how they can can attain all of the toys that they want in this world. Right? Right? And they tell you that if if you confront them on their sin or you tell them that they are wrong or that they are bankrupt spiritually and that they need a Savior who's going to save them from their sins, then you are very unloving, you're very not gracious, you are just confrontational and you're corrective in nature and you're just judgmental altogether, right? That's what we find in our society. Give us encouraging messages, say the multitudes. Give us messages that, that allow us to coddle our sin, Give us messages that give us the the warm fuzzies. Give us messages that don't confront us with the the truth concerning a holy and just God to whom we have rebelled against and committed mutiny against. Don't tell us about that. We only want to hear about a gracious God who only loves, who sweeps our sin under the rug. There are no consequences for what I do on earth. I spoke to a man I respect very much recently, and he told me that there was somebody who came up to him after this person had been attending his church for a number of months and professing to know the Lord. And the person straight out told him, I'm not coming back. I'm not coming back to your church. You keep preaching like that, I'm not coming back to his face. (laughs) And being the savvy with his words, the very gracious man that he is, he told him, you know what? My friend, if... You want to hear the Word of God? And you want, to, you want to come to a place where we're going to open up the Scriptures and tell you what God says and confront you with the, with the truth in love, then you come here. If you are not ready to do that, then maybe it's good that you don't come back. Right? And he didn't come back anymore. See, people often who are in that place with that kind of an attitude don't want to be confronted with their sin. And if you don't want to be confronted with your sin then how, do you, how are you going to be prepared to hear the good news of one who paid for your sins, right? If you don't see yourself as, as sick, spiritually sick, then why would you seek the medicine for that spiritual sickness that is found in Jesus Christ alone? Why would you do that if you don't understand your sin? Paul wrote to Timothy about this being typical of the last days. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. Paul, writing to Timothy, says that in the last days there are going to be people who are very intolerant of the truth. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. But the Spirit, with a capital S, explicitly says, says Paul, that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. 
Because in the last days, this is what's going to happen. People are going to be driven and t- toward teaching that is deceptive and, and is demonic in nature. And can I just tell you this for a second? Teaching that is deceptive and de- demonic, beloved, isn't always explicitly where the guy's getting up and saying things that are untrue, that are not in the Bible. Oftentimes, these false teachers are getting up and saying things, many things that are true, but in there, there's a lot of stuff that is twisted, taken out of context, and people are giving promises that if they accept Jesus, then Jesus will give them everything that they've ever wanted, right? And they can hold on to their sin. Think about Joel Olstein. Joel Olstein. I pray and hope that none of you listen to Joel Olstein. And you know that I'm not one to call out individuals by name, but Joel Olstein's a false teacher. You get me? Joel Osteen's a false teacher. He is deceptive and his teaching is demonic. You know why? Because even though there are thousands of people sitting there physically in his church building and listening to him over television, and you see that they're happy and they're people that are moving, most of those people are spiritually dead in their sins and he's not giving them the healing for that. He's not talking to them about their dead spiritual condition. And he's not talking to them about Jesus Christ and opening up the scriptures and giving them the good news news of Jesus Christ. He's not doing that. He's doling people spiritually all the more so that they are comfortable in their sin and they don't seek the treasure that is Jesus Christ alone. You understand that? Demonic, deceptive teaching is what we're seeing all over our world right now. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, listen to what Paul says to Timothy again. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Talk about Paul wanting Timothy to have a high view of Scripture, of what God says. It's profitable for, for salvation, for sanctification, so that, verse 17, the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And for this reason, Paul says in chapter 4, verse 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. You think Paul wants Timothy to take this serious? Right? Preach the word, he says. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And here is why. Here is why, Timothy, you need to have a high view of Scripture. You've seen its power in your own life. It has the power to edify, to build you up and to build up God's people. Verse 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires to their own lusts there are people beloved who have a desire for materialism for self-esteem to be comfortable and guess what they're going to surround themselves with teachers who are not going to call them out on those things who are going to tickle their excuse me their ears who are going to coddle their sin and paul says timothy don't be one of those Have a high view of Scripture. Remember what God says and uphold what God says no matter how the culture around you is more and more opposed to what God says. Hold up the Scriptures and the authority of Scripture, right? And beloved, I pray that you would pray that we as a church would stand firm in that, right? Who is adequate for these things? Who is adequate for these things? We have a culture that is going against this type of preaching, This type of confrontation or preaching, confronting people with their sin so that we give them the good news of Christ, you see. You need to be praying that we stay faithful, amen? They would stay faithful following after the pattern of our Lord. You say, well, we're not not Jesus. 
Yeah, but like Jesus, we should speak the truth of God's word in love, shouldn't we? Speak the truth of God's word in love. And we should remember that the authority is not ours. Jesus said in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20 in the Great Commission, All authority has been given to me, therefore go make disciples. Right? Whose authority is it? It's Jesus Christ's authority. So when you go and you share the message of the good news with somebody during the week, when you are sharing the message of the good news with your children in your home, which you should, when you are confronted with an opportunity at work to share the message of Jesus Christ, do you understand that you're not coming in your own authority? Jesus has commissioned you and he's given you the baton to go share the message concerning himself that's going to bring hope to that individual. The forgiveness of sins, payment for their sins, deliverance from destructive sins and slavery to their own idols. Being loving, beloved, doesn't mean that you withhold the truth from people. When people are spiritually dead and on their way to hell, is it loving to allow people to continue to go down that route? What do you think? No, absolutely not. Which one of us would allow one of our children, if we were around them, to go in and take something poisonous and just stand there and be like, well, I don't want to offend my little one. And they can just partake of the poison? Is that loving? That is not loving. Should we speak the truth in a... In a mean-spirited, self-righteous way? Absolutely not. Our Lord Jesus didn't speak the truth that way. He did it in love, didn't He? He was the perfect example of one who spoke the truth, and He did it in love. And thus, we should speak the truth that way as well. So notice, from the very beginning of His public ministry, our Lord showed us the purest form of authority by the way that He spoke, by His very life-giving words, preaching the gospel concerning Himself. So Jesus' authority is heard in his words. Secondly, Jesus' authority is seen in his works. Is seen in his works in verses 23 to 28. You know, every miracle that our Lord did was for the purpose of showing us who he is. Everything in the Gospels. Everything that Jesus spoke and everything that Jesus did was for the purpose of showing the fact that he was the King, the Son of God, the only hope for humanity. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter preaches that amazing sermon explaining the the phenomenon of the speaking in tongues of of people speaking known languages that had not previously, previously been understood, and they were speaking of the mighty deeds of God, Peter said this to the people in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God. How? with miracles and wonders and signs which God prepared through him in your midst or performed through him in your midst. What was Peter's point? That as he looked back and he was telling the people about Jesus' miracles and his works, he was saying everything that Jesus did was God authenticating, verifying who his son was, the eternal son of God, the Messiah. And this is important in light of this first miracle that we see Jesus do here, beloved. Jesus here casts out a demon and ultimately the casting out of that demon shows and and verifies and authenticates Jesus's claims concerning himself as the only one in whom there is hope for humanity. That is the hope, the first and foremost point of this miracle here. Look at verse 23. Here's an awesome work that our Lord did It's the first one recorded in Mark, and it says this, Just then, verse 23, this is as Jesus is teaching, there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. Now, no one knew this, right? Mark doesn't tell us that people were aware of that. There's this man amongst them with an unclean spirit. 
Unclean spirit, by the way, and demon are used interchangeably in the book of Mark. Speaking about the same, the same beings, if you will, demons. So this is a man literally, I want you to note this, in an unclean spirit. The sense here is, is that, that this man is, is, in, is fused as one with this spirit. He's indwelt by a demon. He's possessed by a demon. He's completely under the control of this demon. And notice how the demon is described. This spirit is unclean. Unclean. Which speaks to his moral nature. He's morally impure. He's unholy. We get our word catharsis from this word here, unclean, meaning cleansing or purifying. But with the alpha privative, it's acatharsis, unclean. This is an unclean, impure, unholy spirit. In contrast to the, our precious Holy Spirit, right? Set apart, morally pure, righteous, holy. This spirit is the opposite of the Holy Spirit. He's unclean, which means contaminated, polluted, morally impure, He's a filth, right? And picture this, imagine this. In the midst of Jesus' sermon, he's interrupted by an outburst. I thought about ways of illustrating that for you. I think... (laughs) Wow, it's amazing how the Lord answers prayer in interesting ways, huh? So imagine an outburst, if you can possibly imagine it of all days today, right? What that would have been like. It says that the unclean spirit, verse 23, if you notice, cried out. Cried out. You saw that this morning, right? We're focused. We're fixed on what we're here to do. We're here to worship Christ. And we're ready to get into the Word and to hear what God has to say. And what happens? There is an outburst, right? All of a sudden, in front of everybody, this happens out of nowhere. There's this massive noise. And here we are. I remember at another church that our pastor was preaching a message once and we were meeting at, in this building where you can hear everything, everything. And so we all had our little kids there. The church was smaller, so all the kids sat inside of the, the main worship service together and all of that. And so you have all these little toddlers in there. And he was just, I mean, he was, he, it was one of the best sermons I ever heard him preach. And everybody's fixed upon him and paying attention and where he's challenging us, Right? And everybody's focused. And then, in a moment of passion, he gently says this, how can we be so stupid sometimes? He says. He appeals to the congregation, how can we be so stupid? And everybody's obviously very self-introspective. Yeah, how could I be so stupid, you know? And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this little two-year-old toddler says, ooh, he said, stupid. And everybody starts laughing, including our our pastor. He starts cracking up. Everybody's busting up. It's the funniest, cutest little thing, right? Everybody heard it. Everybody heard it. Even that adorable, honest little outcry by a baby boy startled people, right? That's what happens with interruptions. They unsettle people. They startle people. Like cell phones going on off in the middle of the service, brothers and sisters, right? No point of application there. Just making a side comment. But this interruption was much greater, wasn't it? Much greater. Notice as Jesus is teaching, a demon cries out. And the idea is this is a loud scream. 
This is an ear-piercing, high-pitched, loud scream. It's a shriek. It's what it is, what it is. It's a loud shriek. Like the orcs in one of the Hobbit movies, right? Or Lord of the Rings, right? And the dwarves hear, we were watching the Hobbit the other day, and the orcs, the, the, the dwarves hear these shrieks, and they're, they're frightened and they're scared because they're unpleasant to listen to. And they scare these guys. The difference here, beloved, though, is that this is not a, this is not the shriek of a demon trying to scare Jesus or the people. This is a shriek of terror on the part of a demon. Please think about that. (laughs) This is our Lord with unrivaled authority and he is there and this demon is absolutely in terror, absolutely terrified himself. Why? Because he knows who with a capital W is in his midst, right? Look at verse 24. He was saying, what business do we have with each other? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth was his, was his, his, um, uh, his title for his humanity, right? They knew him as Jesus of Nazareth, who had walked amongst them. Literally, what to us and to you? Why do you meddle with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Or to use a contemporary expression, why are you messing with us, Jesus? What did we do to you? This is a threatened, frightened posture. And the question in verse 24, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God, he says. I mean, does he know who Christ is? Absolutely. This is more of an assertion rather than a question. This demon, beloved, knew that because Jesus was God's chosen one, God's Holy One, he was here to dismantle the tyranny of Satan. That's what he was here to do. And in fact, he did on the cross, didn't he? And then rising from the dead, conquering sin and death. Notice that he speaks on behalf of the whole demonic realm. Have you come here to destroy us? Plural, speaking of the whole kingdom of darkness here. This is not the cry of victory, beloved, but of defeat. And shortly in the next few weeks or months, we're going to see in Mark chapter 3, verse 11, that the demons fall down before Jesus and they're shouting, You are the Son of God. You think they're smart? Oh, they know. They know. Demons are real. Demons are real. I think oftentimes we live in the physical realm and we get comfortable going through the norm of life, right? And even like we saw this morning, things happen sometimes that is like, whoa, that is uncommon. That just doesn't happen. If we understood, beloved, that there is a spiritual, demonic realm. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6 that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of wickedness and darkness in the heavenly places. Why are we shocked when things like that happen then? When everything that Satan wants is for God's word not to be preached, for you to lose complete focus, for you to be distracted, for you to be thinking about this issue and that issue in your head right now, instead of listening to the message that God has for you that is pertinent to you where you're at concerning the unrivaled authority of King Jesus. Demons are real and the demonic realm is real and there's a spiritual war going on. Demons are persons with a will and an intellect. They are showing that even here, aren't they? And they are persons with emotions. They, they feel fear and anxiety just like right here before the king of the universe. They're real. The question is, can Christians be indwelt or taken possession of by demons? That is the question that we often wonder, right? We know that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. In what sense? 
in the sense that Jesus has won the war, right? But we're waiting for his return when he delivers the final death blow. We know that. We know that demons can indwell unbelievers, non-Christians. But can they take possession of believers? Indwell believers, Christians. And the answer, beloved, is a resounding no. No. Absolutely not. There's not one reference in the Bible of a believer or in the New Testament, a Christian, synonymous, right? Being taken possession of, inhabited by a demon. You understand that? Say, what about King Saul in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and 1 Samuel 18? Well, it doesn't ever say there if, I don't even know if Saul was a believer, but let's say that he was. It doesn't ever say in those texts that he was indwelt, inhabited by a demon. It says that they tormented him. They came upon him, but not in him, right? So even in the best case scenario, if King Saul was a believer, which I don't think he was, based upon the evidence from the very beginning of his life, that's not speaking about a demon indwelling him. Who has indwelt believers? The Holy Spirit, right? And the Holy Spirit doesn't share his house with anybody. You understand? He doesn't share his house with anybody. The Holy Spirit is the, 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 the believer is the temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God and that you are not your own, right? Your body is. And you are the temple of the Holy Spirit as a believer. So Holy Spirit doesn't allow demonic demons to come into his temple. No. Listen to Colossians 1.13, or it says there that we have been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son, right? Been rescued from the domain of darkness. Romans chapter 8, verses 37 through 39 talks about the fact that we have overwhelmingly conquered. We are overwhelming conquerors through Christ. 1 John chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. We have overcome the evil one. In whom? In Christ. We have overcome the evil one. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. Greater is he, Spirit of Spirit of God, who is in you than he who is in the world. You think any of those texts allow for a demon to indwell a believer? Absolutely not. 1 John chapter 5, verse 18. It says that we who are born of God, God keeps us and the evil one does not touch us. Aren't those passages comforting? What is the conclusion, beloved? Christians cannot be inhabited, taken possession of, indwelt by demons. Certainly like Paul, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we can be tormented. We can be oppressed, right, by the kingdom of darkness. But remember that our three greatest enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? So anytime we sin, we shouldn't be like, well, the devil made me do it. No, your flesh made you do it, right? You are not living God-dependent upon that moment, and you love your sin more than you love God. Don't blame it on Satan. Blame it on yourself, right? What should our perspective as Christians be concerning the demonic realm or the realm of darkness? Don't ever underestimate the power of darkness, right? Don't joke about it. Don't make fun. When we were little kids in our bus ministry, we used to sing this song, Down by the river, down by the river, I took a little walk. I met up with the devil. We had a little talk. I pushed him in the river. And then he went on to talk about how you defeat Satan, right? You know what? I get the heart behind that, but that was not a good thing to teach little kids. Because I was like, yeah, we get it. Let, him, let him have it, you know? 
Listen, we don't fear the devil and we don't fear demons, beloved, right? As Christ didn't. But we need to understand that we need to take that seriously. There's a spiritual war going on so that we are God dependent, right? So that we don't begin to rely upon ourselves and our own resources, but God's spiritual resources. We need to be prayerful, God dependent people, and we need to be word saturated people. Where if you are ever in a unique situation where you do encounter somebody who clearly may be indwelt by demons, that you would be sharing the gospel with that individual because who is able to deliver that person from the domain of darkness but Jesus alone, right? The risen, exalted Christ. He is able to deliver them. So what do you do? You share the gospel, right? Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is what? The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We share the gospel with people in that situation. But remember, demons obey Jesus. Demons obey Jesus. Notice in verse 25, there's no drama, no show. Jesus doesn't exalt himself. Abracadabra, hocus pocus, right? Like the false teachers that were around. With fullness of authority, what does Jesus do? Look at verse 25. And Jesus rebuked him. With authority, he rebukes this demon saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Those are two orders there. Be quiet and come out of him are two imperatives. They are commands. They are not suggestions that Jesus is giving. Jesus is ordering this demon to exit this man. And Jesus doesn't pick up his iPhone and text Satan. Hey, Satan, one of your little ones is over here. Can I have your permission to tell him to scram? Jesus doesn't need permission from anybody, let alone Satan. He just defeated Satan in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And his weakest, right? Jesus defeated him. And he had defeated him for 30 years before the temptation in the wilderness. And he will defeat him at the cross and in the Garden of Gethsemane and through his suffering. And then he rises from the dead. And one day he comes back again to establish a new heavens and a new earth and delivers the final death blow to Satan. Jesus doesn't need permission from anybody in the demonic realm, let alone Satan. Right? So he orders him to get out. It's powerful. As one demon is, able to take on a hundred human beings, beloved, without skipping a beat, they are no match for Jesus. Later on in Mark 5, we're going to see, meet another man indwelt by a demon who it says that he couldn't even be contained. He would break the shackles and the chains as if they were fragile pieces of thread. And guess what? He was no match for Jesus. No match. Because Christ is unrivaled in his authority. Right? So notice in verse 26, This demon doesn't even hesitate. Verse 26, the demon complies, throwing him into convulsions. The unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. Immediately, with one final outburst of demonic rage, the demon violently exits this poor man's body. What a display of almighty power, right? Who does that? Unless Jesus, the apostles, he gave them authority to do that. But who is able to do this just by the word of his power, but Jesus alone? Also, how compassionate of our Lord, isn't it? How compassionate of him. Contrary to people of today, he used his power for this man's good. This poor man who had suffered from demonic oppression, beloved, for who knows how long, rolling around in the dust, perhaps. No doubt been, mis- been treated as an outcast when people recognize the demon in him. 
Jesus restored to wholeness, to peace, and to joy. That is how Jesus used his unrivaled authority, you see. For the good of someone. But how powerful he is, just by mere words. Brings back the images of of Genesis 1 and 2, doesn't it? When God, by the word of his power, created the whole universe ex nihilo out of nothing. He didn't need any pre-existing materials. God simply did it by the word of his power out of nothing, beloved. Jesus does that here. And Mark presents him like this, that Jesus has powerful words. Mark chapter 1, verse 25 here, he says to, be, to the demon, be quiet and come out of him, and the demon obeys him, right? In chapter 4, verse 39, he commands the wind, hush, be still, and listen, the wind obeys him. In chapter 5, verse 41, Jesus commands the lifeless body of a little girl, Talitha, come, little girl, I say to you, get up, and guess what happens? The little girl gets up. In chapter 7, verse 34, Jesus says to a deaf man, be opened. And guess what happens to that deaf man? His ears are opened. In chapter 11, verse 14 and 20, he tells a fig tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And what happens to that fig tree? It withers to its roots, right? Jesus is unrivaled in his authority over the demonic realm, the natural world, the supernatural world, healing everything, beloved. No one compares to Jesus. No one can do what Jesus can do. No one can. He's unrivaled in his power. That's why the word on the street, if you notice in verses 27 and 28, after hearing Jesus' words and works, notice they were all amazed, verse 27, so that they debated amongst themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. You don't keep such power and authority under wraps, right? People want to know now. And they're spreading it. They were amazed. They were awestruck at such power by our Lord. Beloved, I think for many of us, we become so familiar with Jesus' words and works that it's almost like we don't like him anymore. It's almost like he's not sweet to us anymore. We've seen him too much. He's become so familiar. We've meditated so many times on the same passages. And the truth doesn't grip our hearts anymore so that we are not awestruck by the power of the words and the works of Christ. He's not glorious anymore. He's he's not great anymore. He's not sweet to us anymore, to our palates. When we taste of the goodness of Jesus, you know what we are, many of us? Hardened indifferent we are bored of jesus we're bored of him who would have ever thunk it the very one who saved us we're bored of him this coldness may be a result of a number of reasons at the top of the list maybe you've never been born again you ever consider that If you have no affection, no love for Jesus, and you exist in that state of mind continually as a pattern of your life, maybe you've never been born again. Maybe you've never tasted of the kindness of God as revealed in the fact that you trust in one who has paid for your sins on the cross and you believe with all of your heart that he indeed is your savior. Maybe you're not born again. Maybe you've been deceived. Maybe you haven't trusted in Christ. You haven't, you're not presently trusting in Him alone. 
Maybe you're trusting in your religion, in your goodness, a past profession of faith with no fruit over the years. You're a churchgoer. You're a giver of money to, to the church. None of those things save you. Do you understand? Jesus alone saves. He is the root of our justification. Christ's person and his work. Not even our faith saves us. Faith is a gift of God. Christ saves. Christ saves. If you don't love Christ, you're dead in your sins. You're dead in your sins. But listen, there's hope for you, isn't there? There's hope for you. Mark tells us that the Jesus that can overpower demons, heal people, has power over the natural and supernatural world, most importantly can forgive you of your sins. He loves you. He went to the cross to pay for your sins. He can heal you. He can bring restoration. He can, he can free you and rescue you from the wrath of God that is aimed in your direction for your sins. And today is the day of salvation, isn't it? If you are convicted by your sin and you realize, you know what, I've been trusting in my works, in my own goodness. I don't know. I don't ever even think about Jesus. I don't even ever go to his word. There's no affection for him. I need to be saved. Today is the day of salvation for you. Today is the day when you can cry out to God and say, Lord, save me. I am a sinner destined to receive your wrath. But I know that you sent your son because of your great love for me to die on the cross for my sins. He paid for my sins. Oh, Lord, please save me. If you cry out to God that way, he will rescue you, won't he? He will indeed. For others of us, the reason why we view Christ as so cold, in a cold and different way is because maybe you're coddling some sin in your life. Maybe you're compromising in your life. Maybe there are priorities that you have, things that you have elevated above as more important than Jesus Christ. You are compromising in your life, and therefore you're not experiencing the benefits of your justification, joy and peace and fruitfulness and all of those things. Things that are quenching your spiritual vitality for the Lord, that are taking away your appetite for God, rendering you ineffective, Jesus is no longer sweet to you. Listen, maybe you've lost your first love this morning. Who is Christ? You've lost your first love. And I have been praying for you and for our church and for myself that as we behold Jesus on the pages of Mark, beloved, that our hearts would melt as we come to understand the glories of Christ and that as we understand who Jesus is in His infinite glory, we would be led to abandon all of those sins, all of those compromises, all of those misplaced priorities that are keeping us from wholehearted devotion to Christ and we want to submit everything under the Lordship of our King Jesus so that we might be effective, right? I pray for you for that. And then finally, as I was reflecting upon Christ's unrivaled authority, I was just thinking about everything going on in our world, beloved, even what happened earlier. Do you understand that if Jesus possesses unrivaled authority, then we should be reminded of the fact that Christ, who has all this power, will ultimately prevail, right? He will prevail. There's so much hatred, there's so much disorder, there's so much chaos in our country and all over the world. But Christ, who has all power, will prevail. Paul talks about the fact in Romans 8 that creation longs, groans, 
for the revealing of the sons of God, for all things to be restored. And isn't that what we do as God's creatures? As believers, we groan, don't we? We long, oh Lord, how long? How long will your name and your word be rejected and spurned? How long will our brethren be massacred in other countries? And the news doesn't even mention it in a very convenient way, right? We don't hear about the Christians being massacred in other places of the world. Why? Because the news is selective, isn't it? Aren't they? And they just conveniently mention what's important to them. They ignore those things. And we cry, how long is that going to continue to happen, Lord? How long is there going to be division in our country? How long, Lord, is there going to be hatred? So much vicious activity. We groan within our hearts and we long for that, don't we? Say, oh, Lord, please come. Please come. But we don't do it without hope, beloved. We do it in hope as we groan, right? Hope of the glorious restoration that one day everything will be restored back to its original perfect condition. There's going to come a day, do you understand, when Christ will usher in His kingdom. According to Revelations chapter 21 and 22, this is a new heavens and a new earth, spiritual and physical, and nothing can change that or take that away from us who are in Christ. Nobody can. Nothing that happens in this world. Paul says in Romans 8 that I am convinced that none of those things, neither death, nor, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nothing can take us away from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, right? Nothing can. And only Christ, who is unrivaled in his authority, can bring this to pass, beloved. We need to trust our great Savior. Amen? Let's trust him. Let me pray for us. Father God, oh Lord, we thank you for your grace this morning especially. Even as we experienced some things at the beginning, Lord, we know that you are in control of it all. And we thank you for that, Lord. There's always a purpose for everything. And perhaps this morning, Lord, it was so that we would be especially attentive to this text. That we might realize that Jesus has all power. He is unrivaled in his authority. And there's nothing that can happen ever, Lord, that can take us away from your loving grip. Lord, we thank you for that. I pray that we would be people who would continue to behold Christ and that we would live victoriously on this earth, that we would recognize that as we do mission on this earth, that we go in Jesus' authority, that we would speak the truth and that we would do it in love with compassion as our Lord Jesus did. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.